We're going to be reading 2 Kings 8, verses 16 through 29. 2 Kings 8, 16 through 29. Now, we haven't heard about Judah directly since back in 1 Kings. So this is one of the fun things about going through 1 and 2 Kings together is they really are one book and it's all written to flow from one end to the other. And so it's been a while since we've heard about Judah. We've heard some, some secondary things just in reference to what might have been going on there. But now we're going to hear about Judah again. We've mostly been focusing on Ahab and on some of the uh, other things that were going on in Israel. Of course, Elisha figures prominently in those prior chapters, as well as Elijah. Um, but basically, since near the end of 1 Kings, there hasn't been much at all about Judah. Now, since Solomon, which was right at the beginning of 1 Kings, since Solomon, things haven't been great in Judah. It's been downhill ever since that time. But the kings and the people of Judah aren't all wicked like they seem to be in Israel. If you're comparing and contrasting Judah and Israel, Judah has some of the right things going on. Good kings who follow in the footsteps of David, who love the Lord, who seek to honor and serve Him. Versus in Israel, you've got all these kings, one after another after another, who do not have any desire to worship the Lord, who set up false uh, idols, the, the uh, calves, the golden calves that they're worshiping. And so now today we return to Judah, and bad news, the very next two kings are both evil. The next two kings are both evil. Okay, now kids, here's what I want you to look for as we're going to read this passage. Because I already told you the next two kings we're going to read about are evil. I want you to listen and see if you can answer, how did Judah, how did those kings of Judah, how did they follow Israel into sin? Okay? And the second thing I want you to look for is how much water is on the floor. Okay. Oh, coffee. There's none. There's no water on the floor. Okay. Now, there's two things. That's not the second one. Can anybody remember the first thing I said you're supposed to remember? Jude is paying attention. How did they follow into Israel into sin? And the second thing is, why? This is a why question. Why does God show mercy on Judah? Two, two questions. We're going to read it right now. How did Judah follow Israel into sin? And why does God show mercy on Judah? Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? 2 Kings 8, 16-29. Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being then the king of Judah... Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, became king. 
He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab became his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. However, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. For the sake of David his servant, since he had promised him to give a lamp to him throughout his sons always. In his days, Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves. Then Joram crossed over to Zair and all his chariots with him, and he arose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots. But his army fled to their tents. So Edom revolted against Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. The rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, became king in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab had done, because he was a son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Then he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, king of Aram, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Arameans wounded Joram. So King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Arameans had inflicted on him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Aram. Then Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay, were you kids listening? It's a long passage, I know. <clears throat> My two questions I asked you were answered right next to each other, so you had to be paying attention the whole time, or you might have missed both of them at once. How did Judah follow Israel into sin? How did that happen? Go ahead. He married Ahab's daughter. That's right. And the second question, who can tell me the second question? Go ahead. You got to tell me the question first. It's like the dream. Remember, first tell me the dream, then tell me the answer. That's right. Why didn't God destroy Judah? And, and the answer is? Because God had promised to always have a son of David on the throne. And so he was not willing to destroy. That's exactly right. You kids did a good job listening. I saw you had your hands up. Now, <clears throat> how did Judah follow Israel into sin? The answer was, the king married Ahab's 
daughter. So we're going to spend some time talking about that. But we have to understand what that means first. Okay? What does it mean for him to marry Ahab's daughter? It means that he has tied himself to the house of Ahab. So you see in our passage a number of places where it says, it talks about the house of Ahab. The house of Ahab. Now, Judah had the house of the Lord. They had the temple. This is one of the big focuses of the beginning of the book of Kings. The building of that temple and the establishment of the true worship there. But of course, the house of Ahab was not the house of the Lord. It was very different. The house of Ahab was one that was given over to sin. And so to tie yourself to the house of Ahab is to give up the house of the Lord. To tie yourself to the house of Ahab is to give up the house of the Lord. And he, he does this, the king does this through marriage. Now we have to back up a little bit actually because this passage only tells us that the king married Ahab's daughter. But if we go back and we remember earlier and we read elsewhere, we see that his father Jehoshaphat is the one who set this up. Okay, now Jehoshaphat was a good king. Jehoshaphat served the Lord. Jehoshaphat was not walking in the footsteps of Ahab. He didn't have as his judgment of his reign that he was idolatrous and worshipping Baal and these sorts of things. Okay? But through marriage, he marries his son Jehoram to Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. And not only Jehoram's reign is corrupted by this, but Jehoram's son, Ahaziah, who becomes king next, his reign is also corrupted by this one marriage. His reign is corrupted because she remains the queen mother after Ahaziah becomes king. And we'll read more. We, we can read elsewhere about Athaliah and the wickedness that she performs in Judah, in Jerusalem, and the evil things that she causes to be done. But the first thing we need to remember is that marriage is a big deal. Marriage, who you marry, really, really matters. I won't make the mistake like I made a few weeks ago of saying, most of you all are probably going to get married if you're not already. Then I had the peanut gallery pipe up with a no. Nope. Eh, we'll wait and see, buddy. But if you get married, because not everybody will, if you get married, who you marry really, really matters. And we see that here with... Marrying the daughter of Ahab. Because Ahab and Jezebel and their whole house were given over to idolatry, to wickedness, to murder, 
to all sorts of terrible sins. And so Jehoshaphat sets up his son, Jehoram, for failure by marrying him to Ahab's daughter. And he causes a multi-generational fall into sin by this marriage. This is not just a marriage, though. You know when you read of two kings deciding to get together and have their children get married. What's going on? Why do, why do kings do that? Do any of you kids know why, why two kings have their daughter and their son marry? Yeah, Zeal. So they can be allies. That's exactly what's going on here. They're creating an alliance. So, if you think of marriage as an alliance between two people, then if they represent two kingdoms, then those two kingdoms have an interest in the alliance. And so the two kingdoms are allied together. It's helpful for us sometimes to think of it in the reverse direction too. If two kingdoms become allied that way, then that means that the two people who get married are creating an alliance. And what is that alliance that they're making? That's the question. What are they allied on? What are they allied for? What is the goal? And of course, as Christians, we understand marriage exists for a reason. God has created it to accomplish purposes. And when you have those purposes set aside, and one of those, by the way, is purity and holiness of the individuals entering into the marriage, okay? When you have those set aside for worldly goals, nothing good is going to come of it. So these two kings, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, decide that their children should marry because they're setting up an alliance. That's what it's called in 2 Chronicles 18. They call it an alliance. So Jehoshaphat, the godly king, makes a terrible, foolish decision. It's a terrible, foolish decision. Now we understand how men who are godly themselves can fall into error and make terrible decisions, right? It's an easy thing for us to see how we could do it, we can see the temptations. You, you look at these two small kingdoms that used to be united. Neither of them has much power militarily. They've got powerful surrounding enemies. Let's make an alliance. We need protection. We need to be able to support and sustain ourselves. And you can think about the temptations in your life. You can think, yeah, you know, I can see how one decision could be disastrous. And praise God for all the single one-time decisions that He's prevented me from making that would have been disastrous. Right? In 1982, I don't remember this because I wasn't born yet. I was born later in that year, back in the 1900s for you little kids. 
there was, there was a disaster. It was called the Diamond Crash. Have any of you ever seen an air show? Raise your hand if you've ever been to an air show. You ever seen the thun Thunderbirds perform? If you're, I've seen the Thunderbirds. Have any of you seen the Thunderbirds? Okay, so back in 1982, on a training mission, four Thunderbirds were in formation, and they all crashed into the ground together in formation. Boom. They all died. All four pilots. That was called the Diamond Crash. The lead plane, the commander, and, and these air shows with the uh, Navy or the Air Force and so forth, they all have a commander, somebody who's in charge, someone who's running the show. And the commander, he had a, uh, a problem with his aircraft, and that's why he crashed. Why did everybody else crash? Why did everybody else crash? You guys already answered. Any of you other kids? Why, why did the other three planes crash? Anybody? All right, Judd, go ahead. They were following their commander, that's right. They were in close formation. They were tied together. When they're flying in formation, they're all flying just like this. The lead plane, second plane right to his left, third plane just to his right and behind a little bit, fourth plane off to the side or maybe in the middle behind. That's the formation. And that's what's neat when you see them fly like that, right? They fly in formation, these amazing things. And then when the lead plane had a mechanical failure and he couldn't pull out of the loop fast enough, he crashed into the ground. Well, they were all just doing what they were supposed to do, following right behind him. And right in formation, they all crashed and they all died. And that's what Jehoshaphat set up by putting his son in formation with Ahab. He set up a disaster. He allied himself to Ahab and now his kingdom is tied to the kingdom of Ahab, to Ahab's house. And so the wickedness that Ahab is running towards and the judgment that he is running towards, Judah is tied to it in formation. They've made an alliance. And so the result, as we've already seen, is two generations of kings following in the footsteps of Ahab Ahab's house, instead of following in the footsteps of Jehoshaphat. Of course, we don't talk about following in the footsteps of Jehoshaphat, right? We talk about following in the footsteps of David. David who loved the Lord. David who had his sins, his disastrous sins, right? But who was not under the judgment of the Lord because he repented and he loved the Lord. And so, Following in the footsteps of David is the highest compliment that can be made to one of the kings of Israel or Judah. And here Jehoshaphat has set up for his son and his grandson to follow in the footsteps of Ahab instead. And the result we've seen is disastrous, but... <clears throat> 
so far we've just said they've done evil, right? They acted like Ahab. They were evil like Ahab. They were not good. What I want you to see is that the alliance itself doesn't accomplish much. Okay? We see that in our text because they can't win against Edom. They can't win against Libna. They can't win against Aram. And these three small nations, or small little states, if you will, are nothing compared to the world powers of that day. If they can't protect themselves and prevent uh, rebellions on the part of Libna and Edom or uh, against the attacks of Aram, all right, what are they going to do against the world powers? Nothing. This alliance for this worldly protection doesn't accomplish even its worldly goal, let alone avoiding the cost spiritually. And what we always think is that we can compromise without losing the spiritual good. We can run after the worldly goal, but also hold on to the spiritual good. You can't have both, though. You can't have two gods. You can't serve God and money, right? And so, it's never possible for us to make these compromises and still somehow come out untouched, unstained by this world. So what I want you to see is that Jehoshaphat starts a process which then Jehoram, his son, and Ahaziah, his grandson, continue into. And that I want to describe to you as despising their birthright. They are despising their birthright as kings of Judah. If you are a king of Judah, that means that you are a son of whom? Who can tell me? Who are you the son of? Wait, David. That's right. You descend from David, and therefore you have the promises of God to David. That is your birthright. If you decide to despise that birthright, and to join yourself to Ahab, then you have to realize what you're giving up. David versus Ahab. They choose to join with Ahab. If you think about David and you think about Ahab, you can't come up with two more different kings. We don't have time to Read a lot of passages because I've got some others I want to read you. But think of what you know. And if you don't know, I'll just summarize for you about David and about Ahab. David was a man who gave himself to real repentance. Real repentance. Not a sinless man, you understand. But a man who gave himself to real repentance. Ahab gave himself to self-pity. Instead of repentance. 
David was a man who loved the Lord. Over and over again, we are reminded of how he was a man after God's own heart and how he loved the Lord. And we see his faith in the Lord as well. Love and faith in the Lord. Ahab, on the other hand, loved himself. Remember his pity party for himself when he couldn't have the field, the vineyard he wanted. David was devoted to worshiping the Lord rightly. He brings the ark into the city, right? He wants to build the temple. Ahab, on the other hand, gives himself to idolatry. Even after the warnings of the prophets, he doesn't listen. David is a man who is willing to stand against his wife, Michael, when she condemns him for worshiping the Lord with too much zest and too much joy and too much self-forgetfulness. Ahab, on the other hand, can't stand against Jezebel even when she's committing murder in his name. Who do you want to be like? David, who loves the Lord, worships Him with great joy and dancing, who repents when he's caught in sin. Or Ahab, who do you want to be tied to? Who do you want to be allied with? David's the obvious answer, right? Listen to the promises that each of them has. Here's the promise to David. This is the birthright of these kings. From the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. So he's talking about the the fighting that they've been going through. Now he says, we're done with that. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, if that's the promise that you have, how much do you need to be allied to Israel? You don't. You don't need their armies. You don't need their king. You don't need their war machines. You don't need their money. You have God and His promise. He will be strong for you. Here's the promise that Ahab has. 
Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you. Because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. Do you want to be allied to that? That's not who you want to be connected to, is it? If you think you need protection... And the Lord has promised to utterly destroy this king over here and his family and all who come after him and follow in his footsteps. Is it a good idea to tie yourself to him? It's a terrible, terrible plan, isn't it? And yet God shows mercy on Judah. Why in the world, when you've got three kings in a row who go ahead and tie themselves to Ahab in his house, why is it that God shows mercy? Do any of you kids remember? Not the same three hands. Come on, somebody else. Why is it that God shows mercy? We, we read about it. Yeah, why? Because that promise. We just read it because they're from the house of David. And so his promise remains. His promise stays. Verse 19 is where we first read it. He had promised that there would be a lamp always. And so he wasn't willing to destroy them. God was very patient with them. And he's very patient with us, isn't he? Isn't he patient? Don't we see these don't we see these same decisions we're facing? Like, oh, you know what? I think maybe if I'm I mean I might be able to have what the world offers, the protection of the world and the protection of God. God's patient. God is merciful. God is kind. But he does fulfill his promise. And what was the other part of his promise? He will Discipline, when they sin, with the rod of men. So he's going to use mankind as his rod to discipline those whom he loves, whom he has made his promise to. Now what can we learn from this passage for ourselves? A couple of things. The first, the most obvious is, Don't marry an unbeliever. Do not do it. Do not marry someone who's not a Christian. Over and over we get this warning. They will lead you into sin. They will lead you into temptation. They will lead you astray. They'll lead you away from the love of God. 
don't marry an unbeliever. Have any of you kids ever been in a three-legged race? You've done that? As do that at school sometimes for... Ever do that at a party? You guys know what a three-legged race is? That's where two people stand next to each other and you tie their legs together next to each other, these two legs right next to each other. And then you're one body, you're tied together, and you've got to get from here over there. It's a race. But you've got three legs instead of two. It means you've got to work together, right? Can you imagine running a three-legged race with somebody who didn't want to run the race but wanted to run off the field and get ice cream? You think you'd be able to run, run that, win that race? You'd never make it there, would you? Now, that sounds silly, but that's precisely what we're tempted to do when we're thinking about marrying. We're tempted to tie ourselves to somebody that isn't running the race. We're tempted to tie ourselves to somebody that isn't running to God, but running away. Running after the things of this world. Then you think, well, I'm not tempted. And I say, well, it's because you're not married. You're not in love. You're not, you're not on the verge, maybe. But I'm telling you, you have to guard your heart. You have to guard your thoughts, you have to think about what it is that would tempt you to maybe marry someone. What, is, what could somebody offer you that might be a temptation? Because I guarantee you it isn't an alliance for your kingdom because you don't have a kingdom. Right? Now, that's not going to be tempting to you, but, but if you think about marrying when you're a king or you're about to be king, you can marry anybody you want. you got the pick, Right? It's like being the captain out on the field. You get first pick. You can have anybody you want. And so, there's still temptations, aren't there? Even for the king, there's a temptation to go with someone. There's, a, there's something out there that somebody has, somebody who's not following the Lord, that's tempting even to the king. There's somebody out there that has just what you think you want. And so you have to guard your heart. Be protecting yourself from this danger. Jehoshaphat was a good, holy king. But he set up his son and his grandson for evil by teaching them that it was okay to go ahead and make this alliance. What a disaster came. Now, some of you need to be told not don't marry a non-believer because you're already married. But maybe you need to hear don't let your children marry unbelievers. Don't teach them that it doesn't matter. The temptations there are, of course, well, but if I try to intervene, they probably won't listen and they'll just hate me. That's possible. They might. And then you must entrust yourself and them to the Lord. 
Or maybe you think, but I'll damage my ability to speak into their life later on. But no, you will protect your ability to speak into their life later on when they finally come to their senses and realize that you were right. Now there's a big second point. Beyond don't marry an unbeliever or don't let your children marry unbelievers. The big second point is actually the main point. You know how in Ephesians 5 the Bible says that when he's talking about marriage, he's actually talking about Christ and the church. This talk of marriage here is actually a bigger thing than just marriage. Marriage is just one incarnation of how we ally ourselves, how we tie ourselves, how we make a compromise with the world. And so the, the second point that we need to learn is that we must beware who we ally ourselves to in any way. In fact, we can generalize that even further and say, do not associate with so-called Christians who are idolaters. Now, that might not sound like a generalization from one thing to the next. I've made a couple of jumps there, all right? But I want you to, I want you to follow me as I connect those two statements together. Think about this passage. Who is Israel? Israel is not just the world, right? I've often in this sermon been speaking as though Israel is just the world. Well, Ahab is clearly a wicked king given over to idolatry. He's not of the Lord, right? The promise of the Lord to Ahab is only one of judgment and wrath. But Ahab and Israel are part of the Lord's people. Israel, Jacob, the 12 tribes, they've got 10 of them, right? And so these are people who are brothers to Judah. These are people who are close friends and relatives. These are people who are also called by the name of the Lord, though they are off in idolatry. And so what I want you to see is that what we have here is actually a picture of an alliance being made with a so-called brother who is actually given over to idolatry. And so it's not good enough for me to say, don't marry a non-Christian. It's not good enough for me to say, don't ally yourself, don't tie yourself to the wicked world. What has to be said more clearly is, don't marry, don't ally yourself to those who claim the name of Jesus Christ, but don't actually follow him. That's what's going on in this passage. Do not associate with so-called Christians who are actually 
idolaters. And the temptation that we always face is to think, well, you know, they say they're Christians. They're nice people. I don't need to worry about what they do. I don't need to worry about what they worship. They're Christians. And after all, we're not far enough into the degradation of this nation that if we look around and start asking, there's still, most everybody says they're a Christian. At least here. You go out to the coasts, of course, it's progressed far enough that that's no longer the case. But here, yeah, most everybody's a Christian. Now, what's my point? My point is not to be suspicious. Right? Be suspicious. No, that's not the point. The point is, you may not be lazy. You may not refuse to do the work of judging the fruit. So people look at uh, your life, they see the results of your choices. Things you do. Things you make a priority. Things you give yourself to, right? And they may not understand where the fruit comes from, but they like the fruit. They look at it and they're like, oh, you've got such good kids, you're so lucky. And you're seeing the fruit. Good kids, well-behaved, that's amazing. Yep, it's, it's a wonderful gift from the Lord. It's not luck, right? And also, came about because of the decisions and the priorities and the work that we gave to discipline, to teaching, to training in righteousness, right? And so, you can do the same stupid thing that they do. You can look and you can be like, well, you know, there's... Some sad things happening there. There's some bad things happening. I don't know why. I guess you know, you know. But I, but they're good. They're good, nice people. They're they're good Christians. Come on. I don't see why I have to be worried about them. And you don't see you you see the fruit, but you don't you can't see the cause. You ought to have your eyes open. You ought to be remembering the promises of the Lord to His people versus the promises of the Lord on those most particularly who claim the name of Christ and yet who do not follow Him. They more than anybody else sit under His condemnation. Those who are of the tree and the axe is at the root, ready to chop it down. Their church is making this compromise with idolatry right now. Churches that have the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ that sinners can be transformed and freed from the power of sin and its condemnation, the judgment, the wrath of God. The gospel says you can be freed from that, you can be saved from that. but they really want to ally themselves with those who deny the power of the gospel and who insist on staying in sin and under God's wrath. And you see this most clearly in the realm of sexuality. 
because it's one of the main realms where the world has determined for itself, this is what I am. I am an idolater. I am given over to this. It is who I am. And so they insist in staying on staying in sin. They insist on staying under God's wrath. And you've got churches that have the gospel of Jesus Christ able to free, to proclaim to the captives the good news, salvation, freedom. And they don't want to do it. And why don't they want to do it? Because they want those worldly accolades. They want that worldly influence. They want freedom from the world's condemnation. They want freedom from people being angry at them. You see, all the temptations for churches. And we could try to draw a parallel between all the temptations that people have for marrying a certain person, you know, and and all the reasons why they might be. and, and And you can do the same thing with the church. How can you do that when you have the power of the gospel message? And the world trapped in sin. And you're unwilling to proclaim it. What is the point of being the church at that point? And the result, and these, these, these people, they may be holy themselves like Jehoshaphat, you understand. Oh sure, they're not given over to homosexual sin themselves. They just have no reason to speak of it to anybody else. They're walking a well-trod path. We can look 50 years ago and see it in the PCUSA and other mainline denominations. Generations of destruction are the result. And you go back 50 years ago and you look at the men who are in positions of pastor and elder and leadership in these denominations. They're they're godly men. And look at the destruction that they have wrought on their churches. Generations of destruction have come. And we can go back a lot further than 50 years ago. We can look back all the way to Jehoram and Ahaziah. And even though Jehoshaphat wasn't given over to sin himself, He didn't teach his son to walk in the way. And instead, he encouraged him to walk in sin by denying it mattered. How did he deny it mattered? Simply by marrying him off to Ahab's daughter. All through history, we have pictures of this despising of the birthright. I want you to realize that when Jehoshaphat, good king though he was, 
when he began to doubt the promise of God and began to despise the birthright, he set up his son and his grandson for this fall. And that is what happens in churches as well. They begin to teach people that it doesn't matter. How? By not saying anything. By not proclaiming the good news, the birthright that we have of freedom from sin, of protection and the power of God to release those who are caught. And the result is the people have been taught it does not matter if I give myself over to this sin. And so then they do. And then those churches are just like Jehoram and just like Ahaziah. They think that they can have what the world offers and also be doing God's work in winning the world. But what they're actually doing is despising their birthright. And this is a constant warning in the New Testament. This is not just a picture that we get in this one story in the Old Testament of these couple of kings of Judah. Not just a picture that we get 50 years ago in the mainline denominations here in the United States. James 4.4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's it. That's all Jehoram and Ahaziah do. Or 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see what a contrast? Anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's just this black and white. There is a divide between two groups of people. Anyone who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Anyone who loves the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's just this division. And when God judges, in the end, there will be a division between sheep and goats. And there won't be any shoats. There won't be any geats. There's not going to be this huge gray area where it's like, well, you're mostly in and you're mostly out and you're partly in and you're partly out. It's just... Two groups, and the judgment is there, and the wrath is poured out on one group because the love of God is not in them. They have made themselves enemies, and so his wrath is poured out. And now I want to read you one last passage, Revelation 2, 19-23, that describes a particular church giving themselves over to this sin. I want you to note the parallel with Jehoshaphat in this sin, okay? I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation." 
unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. You see Jehoshaphat in that? He's a good king. See this church? Good church. Your deeds, your love, even better now than they were before, but you tolerate Jezebel. And of course, you couldn't ask for a better comparison, right? Because that's what our passage is about. Tolerating that woman Jezebel by inviting her daughter, you know, the, the, the daughter of Ahab married into your family. And yet look at the patience of the Lord here. Look at, look at the kindness that he... The, the, look at the goodness of that description of what he gives. What are they? They're described... By their love, their faith, their service, their perseverance, and their good deeds. And yet, if they don't take this warning seriously, what will the next generation look like? When they tolerate, and they don't warn against Jezebel. What is Jezebel today? Well, I would say <clears throat> we could name particular people. As a matter of fact, I will say Amy Bird is an example of Jezebel. You may not know anything about her. That's fine. Carl Truman tolerated Jezebel. And the fruit of Carl Truman, though he may be writing good books and though he may have good, holy life himself, although I don't know him to make that judgment. The sad reality is that by tolerating her, and she has had time to repent and plenty of warnings. The reason I bring her up is because very recently she wrote, those who said that Amy Bird was on a slippery slope, are justified. Something along those lines. Fully, fully justified. The Lord has been patient. The Lord has given warnings. Will we tolerate Jezebel? If we don't, the fruit is her children being killed with pestilence. Her being thrown on a bed of sickness. Those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. The Lord is patient, but His judgment is severe if they don't change. So let's close by remembering these two things. 
don't marry a non-Christian. All you kids, I hope you're listening. Doesn't matter how young you are, this has to, you have to be reminded of this from the very first time you understand what marriage is. Don't marry a non-Christian. And second of all, more generally, don't ally yourself to the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. And so the temptations to ally ourselves with the world are huge, both by marriage and within the church. We must recognize the disaster that comes. And we must remember the promises that we have, not thinking that what the world offers is wonderful. We have the wonderful promise that was given to David. We have the wonderful promise of the gospel. We have what the world needs. They do not have what we need. 